from the Revelation to St. John. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about an exciting, dramatic, important theological principle. Guess what it is? Ready? That's a, that's a really bad drum roll on a pulpit. We're going to talk about the end of the world. Woo! I'm not kidding. We're going to talk about the end of the world. And the reason people get a little, whenever I say that, people get a little funny because if you're like me, and you, you probably are, uh, as a kid, I remember visiting my grandparents over in Pensacola Beach, great place, and there's a big, long three-mile bridge to get to Pensacola Beach from the mainland, and there was this guy, this pastor, who would stand on the beach every day, summer, all the way through, middle of August in, Pen in the Gulf, uh, Gulf uh, part of Florida. It's hotter than Hades there. And he would stand there with the sign that said, repent, the end is near. And we would drive over the bridge, and I will confess to you, friends, I would, every time I'd see him, I would think to myself, man, that dude is crazy. Is that, is it just me, or is that kind of the way? Okay, well, let me just, let me just challenge you on something, that it's not just crazy Pentecostals that believe in the end times. We do too. And in fact, I would submit this to you, that the Nicene Creed, which you say every Sunday, and so do I, says the following. Ready for this? And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. See, it's not just the guy from Pensacola Beach that believes in the second coming of Christ. It's not just weirdos. It is actually the entire substance of the universal and Catholic faith. In fact, it is the entire sum total of what it is we believe as Christians. And so today, we are going to look at the end of the world, and we're going to see how the end of the world gives us hope for the present. We're going to look at the end of the world and how, more importantly, how the end of the world actually gives us hope and confidence for the present. So, three points today I'm going to look at. I'm going to look at the inevitability of progress. I'm going to look at, secondly, the restoration of Eden. And then finally, how the end of the world teaches us to live now. The inevitability of progress, the restoration of Eden, and how the end of the world teaches us how we live now. So the end of the world. Most people roll their eyes when they hear about it. If you were to go to Publix today and ask Mary the checker, hey, Mayor, what do you think of the end of the world? She's going to probably roll her eyes at you and maybe even call security. But let me just say this to you. This occurred to me this past week. Every single person, including you, every person who's ever lived, ironically believes in it. Every person that you and I know, ironically, believes in the end of the world. And let me just say one thing. When Scripture talks about the end of the world, it does not mean, you know, a meteor coming in and blowing the whole thing apart. The end of the world does not mean the destruction of the world. It means the restoration of the world. 
Hear that again. The biblical idea, what John sees, is not the world's destruction, but its restoration. And every person you know, and even you, and even Mary at Publix, believes in and longs for and hopes for this restoration of the world, the inevitability of progress. Let me give you an example. I don't just mean Christians. Secular atheists. Well, secular atheists believe in the inevitability of progress, that things will get better. Why on God's name an atheist believes that things will get better without a God actually behind the scenes? I have the foggiest idea. But I will tell you, even people that work for social change that are atheists believe in the inevitability of progress, that things will get better. The point I want you to see here, and I'm going to give you two examples in a moment, everyone Everyone believes in the restoration of this world. Everyone believes that things will get better and that it is inevitable. Let me give you two examples to prove my point that everybody believes this. I'm going to give you examples of two people that could not be more different. Two people that could not be more wildly different. You ready for this? Two people as examples that believe in the inevitability of progress and the restoration of this world. Ready? Joseph Stalin and Little Orphan Annie. Joseph Stalin and Little Orphan Annie. Joseph Stalin was the son of an alcoholic shoe repairman, a cobbler. Joseph Stalin was five foot five on a good day with a withered arm and a clubbed foot. He was raised in nothing. He was raised in abject poverty. But Stalin grew to believe, listen, in the inevitability of progress. His own, by the way. What Stalin began to believe was the inevitability of progress, that the working class would rise up against the rulers and the wealthy and, and take the wealth and redistribute it to, across the board, that it would be fair. Stalin, and really all communists, believed that it was inevitable. And they're also atheists, by the way. Stalin was so convinced in the inevitability of progress as he understood it that he was willing to order the execution and murder of 28 million people. As Paul Agassi said this morning in the sacristy, Joseph Stalin makes Adolf Hitler look like a Girl Scout. This guy's a bad dude. But he believed in the inevitability of progress according to his own definition. Likewise, little orphan Annie Little Orphan Annie never killed anybody, as far as I know. She drove Daddy Warbucks crazy. But Little Orphan Annie believed in the inevitability of progress, that things will get better, and I'll prove it. And I'm not going to sing it, because my voice is pretty shot today. Little Orphan Annie says famously, tomorrow, I'm not going to try. Tomorrow, I love you tomorrow, right? The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow... There'll be sun. Oh, yeah? Well, what I'm trying to show you here is the point that everybody believes in the inevitability of progress, that things will get better. And what they're, really, what they're really talking about, Joseph Stalin and Little Orphan Annie are talking about, is the end of the world. The end of this world as it currently exists. It's restoration. And what I mean is this, everybody believes, listen to this, everybody believes that the world should be and inevitably will get better. Everybody believes that. And so here's the question I want you to think about this morning. Where in God's name 
does that expectation come from? Everybody believes that the world should be better, right? That the world, is that true, you think? Everybody believes the world should be a better place. The minute you say should, you're comparing this world to something else. Well, this world has always been full of suffering. We've always had death. We've always had disease. We've always had war. Why is it that all humanity believes that the world should be better, that believes in the inevitability of progress? Look around you, man. It's not based upon the evidence. The world is existentially no better today than it was 10,000 years ago. Yes, we have iPads. <laughs> and yes, we have Netflix. And yes, we have Keurig cups for your coffee machine. I love those old things. But just think about it. Is, are, is humanity in an existentially different place now than it has ever been? And the answer is no. So here's the question I want you to think about. It's a biggie. Where does this sense of inevitability of progress, that things should be better, where in the world does that come from, man? It's not learned, certainly not experiential. The world's a mess. I'll tell you where it comes from. St. Paul writes in chapter 9 of Romans, verse 18. Ready? For we know, and that, that we there means all humanity, to my point. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains in childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, listen to this, we, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. <laughs> Stalin. Little Orphan Annie, St. Paul, you. We all believe that the world should be a better place. We all believe in the inevitability of progress. We all yearn for, listen, we all yearn for and expect the end of this world. Do you want to know why that is? Secular atheists have no answer. Stalin has no answer for why. Progress should be inevitable. Do you want to know why? Do you want to know why you, you expect and demand progress and why you're, you get a sense of injustice when things are not the way they should be? I'll tell you why. I'm going to tell you why. The Bible tells us clear as a bell. The reason you believe that is because you and I, friends, we were made, listen, for something better. You know, I had a, when I was 20 years old, I had a great big issue with the nature of evil. And man, I read lots and lots and lots of stuff trying to unpack where does this idea of, of fairness even come from? There's no other explanation except for here what the Bible says, and it's this. We believe in the inevitability of progress because this is not our true home. Because we were made, listen, for something better. If you know your Bible, you know that in Genesis chapter 2, God created, God creates everything, Genesis 1 and 2, and then God creates humanity, and he created Adam and Eve, it's a long story, but it's historical narrative, it's true, he created Adam and Eve to live in Eden, which is ironically in modern day Iraq. Heaven, essentially, God created us to live in Eden, where there was no suffering, no death, no brokenness, no cancer, no love bugs. You know how hard those things are to get off your car? Even with a power washer, man, you're... Before the fall, 
before the fall, the way God created us to live, the way that he created you and I to live, life was good. Not like those stupid refrigerator magnets, but life really was good. Because there was no suffering. There was no brokenness. There was no fall. And then the fall happens. Adam and Eve eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't dismiss that story, by the way. It's a really, really profound and deep story with a lot of nuance to it. They are expelled from the Garden of Eden. And now, and then they and we inhabit this world. A fallen, broken, pale, lousy, well, maybe not lousy in Vero Beach, but largely speaking, a pale comparison of what you and I were truly created for. And why we, ex- we believe in the inevitability of progress is because as a species made in God's image, we remember it. We remember Eden, don't we? Intuitively. We long for it. We expect it. We demand justice. Why? Because we were made for it. And this is precisely why, friends, St. Paul, Joseph Stalin, Little Orphan Annie, Mary at the Publix, and you. This is precisely why we all yearn for something better. Because that's what you and I were made for. And in the book of, that's the point I want you to see, that we all believe in the inevitability of progress and that things will get better. The sun will come out tomorrow because we were made for something better. My second point then is that what Paul, what St. John sees is the restoration of Eden. St. John has a vision in Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 8 of the end of this world. And again, it's not the destruction of the world, it's its restoration. I'll get to that in a second. But what John sees is not a communist gulag. What John sees is not a Broadway show with a curly-haired, red-haired girl, Annie. No. What John sees, look at it again, is the reunion of heaven and earth. Think about it like this. The Bible is, as a story, a great big circle. I came across this a couple of years ago. The Bible is a great big circle. The Bible is, the book, the first book of the Bible is Genesis. The last book is Revelation. In Genesis chapter 2, you have the creation of men and women in the Garden of Eden. Two chapters from the end of the book, you've got the reestablishment of the Garden of Eden. What you see is, and what the Bible starts off with is God creating us to live with him in paradise in heaven. We go all the way through scripture to to Jesus, his death on the cross, his restoring us to life with him. And at the end of the book, the last chapter of the story, what we see is heaven again, restored, Eden. See, the discontent that you have in your spirit the anxiety that you hold, the worry and fear that you have, friends, it's real. It's universal. And the reason is because you were made for something better. That's the reason. And that reason, that world, you will in fact inhabit when Christ returns. According to him. Let me ask you a question. What issues, what fears, what concerns, what worries do you have right now? Everybody's got something. I believe me, as a pastor, everybody's got something. What issues and concerns and, and concerns and fears and worries do you have right now? Could be anything. Where do you see brokenness? It's probably one of the big three: health, relationships, or money. Is that fair? If you got a fourth one, let me know because that's the, that was the best I could do. 
Health, relationships, or money pretty much is where most of our brokenness comes from. And man, friends, everybody's got something. Except for me. I'm kidding, actually. And in fact, I'm going to share with you uh, something which, to make my point, um, just this past Thursday night, I received a phone call from my brother, Jim, who lives in Pensacola Beach. Jimmy is my younger brother. I am the oldest of three. And my father, uh, Tony is his name, 76 years old. My dad had a fall back about a month ago, has been in the hospital ever since, and he had been suffering with dementia, and it's really, really gotten bad. I mean, suddenly gotten bad, to the point now where my father has to be uh, he is combative, which is not his personality. He is, uh, my stepmother has said, your father is saying things I've never heard him say before. It's totally unlikely. And, and I'm talking to my brother about this. And friends, I'll tell you, on Thursday night, I am 50 years old. I have not cried like I cried in my teens, probably. I mean, and the reason is because he's bed, my dad is bedridden. He can't walk. He doesn't know where he is. My father, my hero, my love deeply is just falling apart in front of me. You tell me that's fair. It's not. Life should not be that way. Friends, we've all got something. We've all got stuff. And the reason is because, the reason is because you and I and my dad, we all live in a fallen world, but we were made for something better. So how does the end of the world, how does that impact how we live now? How does belief in progress, how does our belief in the inevitability of Christ's return, how does that help us to live in the here and now? That's my third point. How does the belief and the description of Revelation 21, the reunion of heaven and earth, how does that help me now? Well, many of you may know I'm a big fan of a guy named Jordan Peterson. Anybody heard of him? He is uh, very influential. He is a Canadian. He is a, a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. I love the guy. He is brilliant. He catches a lot of flack from certain quarters. And I'm not really quite sure why, because what they, what they accuse him of is not true in my estimation. But I was listening to his podcast this past Thursday, driving back from Orlando uh, in my car ride, dodging the love bugs I'm coming through here. And he had a, he had a, his podcast was on anxiety and worry. And he said that anxiety, this, this anxiety is the anticipation of punishment, right? I mean, anxiety is not punishing, it's not, it's not painful, but anxiety and worry is the anticipation of something going wrong. Anxiety and worry is, is thinking that something may occur based upon what, you, what may go wrong with your, with your life. If you're anxious about schoolwork, for example, it's because you're afraid to fail. If you're anxious about your marriage, it's because you're afraid your marriage is going to fall apart. If you're anxious about your health, it's because you're afraid your health will deteriorate. You see my point? Anxiety is not suffering. It is the anticipation of it. And what Peter said, Peterson says this, this is brilliant. He says, uh, most people think that we as humans are born as the tabula rasa, right? The blank slate, that we're all just cute little babies that come out free of any worries at all, and that life kicks us in the, in the pants, and that we learn suffering by experiencing negative things. Peterson says, that's not true. Peterson says, the natural state of animals or humanity is not calm. The natural state of animals and hum humans is not calm, but anxiety. 
And at first I didn't believe him, but I do know, and here's why. I bought a new puppy for my family. He's cute. Dumber than a bag of hammers. But he's cute. And you know, you would think a puppy of all things would be lovey, 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 jumps on the couch, wants to roll around, you bring him home, want to play with him, throw a ball right away. Nope. We brought that dog home. He was this big. Put him on the floor, you know, put him down on the ground. You know what he did? He froze. He froze. And he looked around, and he's looking up. He wouldn't do anything. He was, he was terrified. He was anxious. And what he started to do, he started to sniff. He started to walk around. You ever, you've seen cats do this too, right? They begin to walk around and explore, and they're real tentative, and he comes up to the vacuum cleaner, and he goes, whoa, and he backs up. And then he realizes, oh, that's not going to hurt me. And then some guy walks into the room with a black shirt and a white collar, and he's terrified of me. And then I go, and I reach down, and I pet him, and he kind of backs up, and then he kind of, he begins, he begins to, his fears begin to go away. But I want you to see, the point is that the natural state of you is not calm, but anxiety. And the way you become calm, listen, is by learning your environment and by learning to be calm. You learn it by experience. You learn it by realizing that the things that you fear really aren't dangerous. What Peterson says, and this is actually comes right to Revelation 21, what Peterson says is this, the way to avoid anxiety is not, the way to become unanxious is not by avoiding anxiety, but by, by being courageous through it. The way that my little puppy learned to not be fearful is to walk around and explore, to take a risk, to trust that the things that were there weren't going to hurt him. Friends, if Revelation chapter 21 is true, if heaven and earth, when Christ returns, are reunited, and you know the end game, therefore, then you have nothing to fear. Knowing the end game, the restoration of Eden, gives you and I courage. Knowing the end game, when Christ returns, and the restoration gives us courage for the, for the now. Because all the stupid things you've done, it's going to be all right. All the weeds you find yourself caught up in, all the worries you have, it's going to be okay. Know why? Jesus comes back, and he wins. I'll never forget when I was in seminary, my spiritual director, Father Gross, wonderful man. I was worried. It was my senior year of seminary, and I was telling him about, worry about where I was going to get a job, and graduating, and seminary is pretty difficult, actually. And he said to me, he goes, he goes, you're a problem, Chris. That's how we talked. Your problem, Chris, is that you live in the weeds. And I said, what in, what in the world do you mean by that? He says, you are, you're down here, and you're struggling around. You're in the weeds. He said, stop it. He said, stand up and lift up your head and look forward and remember that Jesus wins. He was right. He says, you've taken your eye off the ball. Friends, if heaven is inevitable, it is, and it is for those who trust Jesus, then for God's sake, live like it. Live courageously. Live confidently. Live boldly. Have a good time. Because this world is not the end. It, progress is inevitable for the Christian. That when Christ returns and sets the world to rights, 
All the things you worry about will be put aside. The world will be the way it's supposed to be. And friends, that and that alone is what gives you and I hope for the present. Father, we thank you for St. John's vision of the restoration of this world. We thank you for Jesus who punches our tickets and admits us into heaven by his death on the cross in our place. Lord, help us to keep our eyes focused on you. Help us to stand up out of the weeds and wait for Jesus and look for him. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.